0: Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. We would not be seeing these unprecedented
1: extreme weather events
0: in the absence of human-caused warming from the burning of fossil fuels and carbon pollution.
2: Extreme heat waves in U.S. and Europe virtually impossible without human-caused climate change, study finds. Extreme heat plus pollution doubles the risk of fatal heart attacks. Plus, how big of a deal do you think this announcement is?
3: a big deal.
2: Major U.S. automakers unite to build national EV charging network.
0: All of those big deals and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And
2: I'm Desi Doyen.
0: Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment.
2: I was just on an oil rig in Texas. It's the most patriotic thing I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, sure. Destroy the United States. God bless America. This is your... Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I don't know how many hot tubs there are, for uh, residents of Florida, but it sounds like they don't need to buy one now.
2: No, they certainly do not, but they might want a hot tub time machine. (laughs) Waters off Florida topped 100 degrees for two straight days, and if verified, that could be a new all-time high world record. Much of the northern hemisphere remains in the grip of weeks-long heat waves with stunning but predictable impacts around the Mediterranean with temperatures around 120 degrees, fast-spreading heat and wind-driven wildfires have forced new evacuations and tragically killed dozens in Algeria as they were trying to escape the flames. In Catania, Sicily, officials say the prolonged extreme heat has melted underground cables, knocking out power and water to hundreds of thousands.
0: I guess you didn't think of that when you've been calling for them to bury the power lines out here in the U.S., did you?
2: Good point. Cereal crop production in southern Europe is also predicted to fall by as much as 60% over last year's yields due to the heat. Phoenix's record streak of consecutive days over 110 degrees still ain't over as we go to air, with the city on track to become the first major U.S. city to see an average monthly temperature higher than 100 degrees. City buses are being used as mobile cooling centers. Hospitals are filling body bags with ice to treat heat victims. As the heat drags on, municipalities across the country are racing to install long term adaptation measures like cool roofs reflective pavement and planting street trees. Sadly, Arizona's record streak of extreme heat and drought is testing the ability of the state's saguaro cactus to survive, Uh both in the wild and in urban areas. The iconic symbol of the American West is adapted to heat, but critical summer monsoon rains have failed to arrive this year. (laughs) Conservationists report the long-lived cacti are losing branches and collapsing. Not good. Several new studies this week focus on health threats from the heat. An analysis found that the combination of extreme heat and air pollution may double the risk of fatal heart attacks. Two new studies find warmer overall temperatures are expanding the range of disease-carrying mosquitoes and ticks, which are spreading farther north. A new report by World Weather Attribution scientists finds that the record-shattering heat waves this summer in Southern Europe, North America and China would have been quote, virtually impossible without climate change. The scientists warn that unless the world rapidly stops burning fossil fuels that cause man-made climate change, these extreme heat events will become much more frequent, occurring every two to five years.
0: I think it's going to be more frequent than that.
2: But climate scientists have repeatedly urged speeding up the transition away from fossil fuels to prevent warming and its impacts from getting even worse. Here's Dr. Leah Stokes on CBS News.
1: This isn't like a permanent situation. If we stopped burning fossil fuels, the temperature would start to stabilize. But unfortunately, until we do that, there's a lot of warming in the system and it's going to keep getting worse. I'm not interested in talking about how it's impossible or how it's not real. It's real. It's happening now. And we know what to do to Stop it.
0: I'm interested in talking about how impossible it is,
2: but there is some good news. Uh Toyota has announced a new electric vehicle battery chemistry that it says cuts costs in half and can go more than 700 miles on a single charge. Really? The European Union passed a law to blanket its highways with fast EV chargers by the end of 2025. Cool. And in the U.S., seven major automakers, including BMW, GM, and Honda, have joined forces to build 30,000 chargers in an expansive EV fast charging network across the U.S. and Canada. Canada that will integrate restaurants and retail stores.
0: Impossible. We'll never do it. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. It wouldn't be patriotic. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Pandora, TuneIn, Apple, Google, or Amazon Podcasts. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on Facebook, Mastodon, and the website formerly known as Twitter, At Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And
2: I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been
0: your Green News Report. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate.
4: One of the books that I wrote called We the Students, that book got banned in Texas.
3: From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in Massachusetts.
4: The same week that I learned that my book was banned down there, I, uh, Vladimir Putin banned me for life from ever entering Russia. I I made some good enemies uh, that week, I suppose.
3: Since 2017, Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin has been representing Maryland's 8th Congressional District. The co-leader of the Free Thought Caucus on the Hill, he's a member of the Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol, as well as of the Judiciary and Oversight and Reform Committees, among others. In an age where Congress continues to be dominated by Christian identities and worldviews, Congressman Raskin is unusually representative of where much of the nation is heading, belief-wise. We'll lean into that perspective as we look forward to the 2024 election cycle.
5: This is about equality. This is about equal access. Um, And so that's that's why this legislation is, is so critical.
3: Earlier this month, a group of legislators from both houses reintroduced the Freedom to Vote Act which includes strong provisions to expand voter access and counter attempts to undermine our electoral system. Interfaith Alliance Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy, Darcy Hirsch, will be back to discuss why this is an issue for the Interfaith Agenda. We're very proud of the show we're putting together for you week after week. To get these important conversations in front of more people who need to hear them, we've partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a next generation podcast I want to make sure you are subscribed to. Please visit stateofbelief.com/newpodcast. State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping to get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland is co-chair of the Congressional Free Thought Caucus and served as lead impeachment manager for Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. He's also an outspoken proponent of respect for Americans of diverse belief and faith systems, and I'm delighted to have him with us today. Congressman, welcome to State of Belief.
4: Great to see you, Paul. Thank you for inviting me to do this.
3: I'm thrilled. Let me start by saying thank you for your service to the country, to all the ways that you have shown up, stood up, spoken up about how government can work for all the people and also how decency can still prevail in government. So I want to start out just thanking you for all the ways you have shown up and become like an exemplar for uh, government in America. So, so thank you. And I want to start by giving you an opportunity to tell me and my listeners about the free thought caucus, because it's, it's something that is so intriguing to me and I know you were involved and in, I think in the founding of it. So what is the free thought caucus in Congress and what, Uh, need is it filling?
4: Well, uh, we created it back in 2018. My friend Jared Huffman from California and I um, just decided it was getting um, a little bit too, um, you know, uh, theologically uh, obsessed and Christian nationalist in the country and in government and that um, the basic understandings of uh the first amendment of the founders of the separation of church and state were being lost and so we wanted to uh, stand up for the enlightenment tradition in american politics
3: well it seems absolutely necessary but what's interesting to me is if you look at the people who are involved it's People from different faith traditions, different backgrounds. Some may identify as secular or humanist. Others have other traditions, including Muslims, Christians, and yourself as a person of Jewish heritage. How does your own tradition, your background, factor into Free Thought Caucus and into your own sense of what governance is?
4: Well, yeah. I mean, we were emphatic from the beginning, Paul, that there be no sectarian dogma of any kind, of any particular religious faith or no religious faith. We wanted it to be open to anybody who identified basically with Tom Paine and Thomas Jefferson and Frederick Douglas and the, the, you know, Susan B. Anthony, the people who fought for a progressive pro-democracy, pro-freedom tradition in American life and understood, um, the ways in which, um, Uh, sectarian authoritarianism were a threat to free thinking and free people.
3: Exactly. I mean, that's I think it's so important that this does not have to be to to want to create uh, appropriate boundaries between government and religion does not mean you're anti-religion. It means that you're actually trying to get both to thrive in their own way, but not to let religion become too much involved with the um, with the machinations and to use the power of the state to impose a vision on the rest of the people. I think that that's what we're seeing with Christian nationalism, which is so dangerous.
4: I mean, the, the way that I think of it is that um, we need a strict separation of church and state, which was what Jefferson advocated in his letter to the Danbury Baptists, where he came up with the metaphor of the wall of separation. Um, But we don't have a separation of religion and politics because um, religion, like other systems of belief and values, can come to inform how people feel about things and what they believe in and what they want politics to accomplish. So there's no separation there. But when it comes to the government, um, the government cannot endorse and advance religious dogmas and impose them on the people and um i think that the best understanding of our first amendment is that we have no establishment of religion and we have free exercise of religion and they support the same value because you can't have free exercise of religion and freedom of thought freedom to choose your own religion and worship as you please or not to have any religion and not worship if one group is able to capture State power and impose uh, religious tests and religious dogma on everybody else. And so the anti establishment principle and the free exercise principle stand best when they stand together. That's what creates real freedom of religious choice and freedom of thought.
3: Have you had success with the Free Thought Caucus reaching out to people who often bring religion into their politics and to invite them into conversation, saying, let's have a real conversation about the way politics and religion can work together, but not exactly, as you say, not impose a um, religion upon the state.
4: Have you had yeah. any success with that? I mean, I had a very interesting um uh, conversation with a conservative republican uh friend who's I, you know describes himself as um uh fundamentalist born again I suppose um and you know and I made this distinction between church and state separation versus religion and politics where people can freely interweave the two if they like um And he said, well, you didn't have any problem with Dr. King being involved in politics because you liked his politics. And I I said, I don't have any problem with anybody exercising their First Amendment rights and being involved in politics. But understand this, Dr. King's agenda politically was never to impose prayer in the schools or to take government money and give it to churches were to um, violate the separation of church and state. His political agenda was civil rights and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and reducing the military industrial complex and investing in um, social development and education and so on. So what motivated him to get there was undoubtedly a profound um spirituality and religious faith and understanding of what it meant for him to be Christian no doubt um and that's all to the good I mean you know I I I tremble to think where American politics would be without the influence of the black church right in fact there's an interesting book by Susan Jacoby about this where she describes the way that social and political progress in America have depended upon Um, a strong political coalition among progressive religionists from every faith tradition and non-believers. And the civil rights movement is a great example of that. I mean, you know, you had uh, Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was basically black ministers from all over the country who became the bulwark and the heart of the nationwide civil rights movement. And SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which were a lot of young people who were not, uh, you know, religiously organized, and many of them were freethinkers and, um, you know, didn't adhere to a particular uh, church doctrine. But together, it was the combination of the freethinkers and the secular reformers with the progressive religionists that made the civil rights movement
3: happen. Including Rabbi Heschel and, and many, many others uh, who showed up yes. in that way. When I'm thinking yeah. of uh, freedom of thought right now and Free Thought Caucus and other ways that we need to be uh, maintain our freedom of thought, I my mind goes to book bans. My mind goes to ways that people are intentionally trying to limit the the kind of information that we can receive Talk to me about you know we're, we're Interfaith Alliance is very involved in the in the struggle to to say actually book bans are against religious freedom because they're against the freedom to believe what you want to believe and to learn what you want to learn. i how do you how do you understand um, in your own framework the the efforts to to ban books and, and curtail uh, education in the way that is being done in in states like um, Florida, states like Texas.
4: Well, um, one of the books that I wrote called We the Students, which is about all the Supreme Court cases that affect young people in school, like locker searches and drug testing and censorship of yearbooks and newspapers and school prayer. That book got banned in Texas um, in um, a number of counties and by the Texas State School Board. uh, And um, The irony is that it was sponsored by the Supreme Court Historical Society. Um, So um, uh, I've thought a lot about this book ban thing. By the way, the the same week that I learned that my book was banned down there, uh, Vladimir Putin banned me for life from ever entering Russia because of my pro-Ukrainian activities. So um, I I made some good enemies uh, that week, I suppose. But... um, Look, book banning has been a central fixture fixture in authoritarian politics and fascist movements forever. Book banning, book burning, attacks on books, attacks on education. I mean, there you know you've got to view the ban on books in the attempt to uh, stop critical uh, race theory, by which they mean any teaching of the actual history of the country, uh, with respect to racism and white supremacy. Um, all of these are efforts basically to, to condition the children of America, the young people of America, um, to get ready for being subjects in an authoritarian society. I mean, it's schooling people for authoritarianism wow. is what they're really doing. So, um, I see it, you know, in explicitly political terms as part of a right wing agenda, um, you know, to uh, undercut voting rights, to roll back civil rights, to attack libraries, librarians, books, uh, educators, um, to wreck the public schools as much as they can. And, um, you know, they've got a wrecking ball agenda. I mean, you know, I go to work with these people every day um they don't come saying well what are we going to do to strengthen american communities this week what are we going to do to improve public health now they come in and they say well how are we going to trash trans children this week or how are we going to um you know attack the biden family with conspiracy theories and so on like that's the agenda
3: oh, it, it is very very frustrating and you you know you Often speak up, and you name it, and we certainly appreciate it. Those of us who hope for a government that will actually deal with the, the problems that are pressing our, our people. You've personally dealt with a lot of difficult things over the last um, decade, and you know I think in some ways the way you've been open about um, the loss of your son, the your own um, health it's also allowed people to feel like, okay, a public person like that can be forthright, can be, can offer wisdom and pain. And I, I, I know that's not like your primary job as a congressman and as a, as a leader, but I do wanna just, you know, say, commend you for it. And, and wondering like for you personally, like leaning into your Jewish tradition or, or what, what gives you strength? Given what you've had to go through?
4: Well, you know, I derive strength from wherever I can find it. Um, undoubtedly, um, you know, our synagogue, our rabbi, our congregation, you know, have been extremely supportive and encouraging. Um, and that's true also of lots of other people's churches and synagogues and mosques and and people completely outside of any particular religious community. I mean, you know, one of the criticisms I have of uh, some of the, you know, critics of religion in America is that they don't understand that lots of people are organized in religious communities and religious life. It's not, you know, they look at, um, you know, scary religious cults like the Church of Scientology or like what we saw with the right-wing um christian nationalists on january 6th or you know there's a really interesting documentary i saw recently called shiny happy people about uh an authoritarian christian cult um that pulled the wool over a lot of people's eyes but um you know it's a mistake to characterize all religion in that way because it not all religions are like that not all religions are built on child abuse and terrifying and horrifying people. And there are lots of secular, you know, organizations that do operate on those principles. So, um, you know, to my mind, I think an American pragmatic approach to this is you take you take institutions um, as they come to you and you judge them by virtue of what their real world consequences are in the, you know, in life and um, so there are wonderful churches and wonderful synagogues and uh, church groups, just like there's some that have been taken over and driven into, um, you know, despair uh, by virtue of who their leaders were. So, um, you know, but in an existential sense, um, I've derived a, a lot of strength from my family, of course, and my friends and my constituents and um you know, I, I wrote a book about Tommy and about the times we, we came through ever since we lost him on the last day of December in 2020. Um, and um, so the writing has been somewhat, you know, cathartic for me um, to try to understand best that I can everything that happened with Tommy and everything that's happened in America with January 6th and COVID-19 and impeachment and everything. Um, and um, yeah, I, I mean, I I know, I, you know, there's a, a poem by the Spanish poet Makata where he says, walker, there's no path. The the path must be created by walking, you know, and so there's not one way to get through a catastrophe. Mm. like that um, or any of the, you know, traumas of our time. Um, And so, you know, we do our best. But for me, politics has been an important part of it because I feel like I'm able to channel uh, a lot of the emotion and angst of these times into some constructive action.
3: Absolutely. Thank you for that answer. We'll take another break now and be back with more of this conversation with Representative Jamie Raskin. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. And please make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation podcast. Please go to stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. State of Belief Radio,
0: twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network.
2: 911, what's your emergency?
3: America's healthcare system is broken and people are dying.
1: Welcome to Code Whack where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Weck. How have health clinics that perform abortions been affected by the reversal of Roe v. Wade one year ago? What kind of legal challenges have there been to individual states' limitations on abortion since then? To find out, we spoke to Kat Duffy, a policy analyst in the National Health Law Program's Washington, D.C. office. I firmly believe that one of the ways in which we got to the abortion access crisis that we are currently in was by ignoring the policy developments that were happening at the state level as anti-abortion opponents enacted restriction after restriction. I also know that there are amazing people at the state level doing incredible work to destigmatize abortion, to build power, and to create a healthcare infrastructure that actually serves people. And I think that centering questions of access in mapping out the, you know, solution to Dobbs is essential. Focusing on the legal right to abortion is too narrow and it's just repeating the mistakes of the past because I'm a little bit like a broken record, but like just because abortion is legal does not mean it is accessible, and we should be building a landscape where all people can have access to the care that they need. Get the full Code WAC story on progressive voices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code WAC wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for health reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy.
0: This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network.
3: Welcome back to State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. My guest is U.S. Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland. Talk to me a little bit about how you understand January 6th, but then where we are now. And are you surprised that January 6th now has become a rallying cry for um, candidate Donald Trump? Like he's literally leaning into what happened that day. We're seeing. Inevitably.
4: I I kind of predicted that at the impeachment trial, where I tried to get his lawyers to commit that not only. Were they not saying anything positive about the riots and the insurrection during the trial but that they would never and Trump would never come to embrace it and of course you know that they they didn't commit to do that it, it just seemed absolutely inevitable to me um that Trump was going to end up trying to lionize and um canonize um the people who attacked our officers and stormed the capitol and tried to overthrow our election. And, you know, the history of coups all over the world um, is that if you don't soundly defeat the political coup makers and if there's no reckoning in the justice system, they will come back again. And the, the biggest indicator of a successful coup is a recently failed coup where the coup perpetrators are able to diagnose the weaknesses in the existing system and also what mistakes they made. Um, So, um, you know, there will be an effort by Donald Trump and his party, which is now operating like an authoritarian religious cult um, to take the presidency back by any means necessary. We've already seen that they've been willing to use violence. We've already seen they've been willing to use voter suppression. Um, and uh, attempts to corrupt the counting of votes and electoral administration, and so we have to be prepared for each and every one of those things. Exactly.
3: I mean, and, and as you've seen, I, I'm sure you, you know, we are extremely um, aware and vigilant around Christian nationalism, which is has it, all the polling shows of Christian nationalists. They view violence as an acceptable means of power acquisition that they, in the face of what they view as the loss of power, they are. Will, they say in poll after poll that they're willing to use violence. And so the underpinning of Christian nationalism to January 6th, I think, you know, has been underexplored perhaps, or, you know, many of us have talked about it a lot, but I think, you know, there, we, we, I think many of us, truly believe that that is one of the motivators uh, and also one of the sustaining things that allows it to continue to have um, power among a certain um, and diminishing part of American population. But for that fact of diminishing, wanting to keep a hold of power no matter what and by by using any sort of force necessary.
4: That's right. And Donald Trump has, um, an expanding and proliferating control over this shrinking part of the American population. But it's becoming ever better organized and mobilized under him. So it's going to be a race between the Democratic will of the pro-freedom majority in America versus the bag of tricks that they have, the gerrymandering of state and federal districts, the voter suppression tactics, right-wing judicial activism, corporate dark money, uh, propaganda, uh, disinformation and so on. And- I
3: would add to that terrorism. I mean, the, the, all, all across the country, we are seeing them using the threat of violence in order to suppress, you know, voters. But also like, you know, we we in in Southwest Florida, we had a we had a interfaith alliance um Organizer and member who um, was a was a rabbi who spoke up against Christian nationalism and was followed to his car and and you know you have this sense of like threat and I I just want to you know I just I find this you know this uh, unacceptable. Um, road that they are traveling down. And we just have to, you know, I think you've named it very well. It's this race. And I do think we have to really uh, take it seriously. A quick, if you can, comment about the judiciary. You may or may not know that Louis Brandeis was my great-grandfather and I grew up venerating the court. I mean, my father was a law professor. You know, I, I was very like, yeah. oh, the law, it's the highest. You know, I literally, the first time someone said that the law was like, you know, not a weapon for good. I was just like, really? You know, know, all the lawyers i know are like really out there trying to fight the good fight but right now i i don't want to sound naive but like i really view the the court is not gonna is not gonna save us you know i mean like we the court is not gonna protect i'm you know a gay man with uh two children there i don't believe the court is gonna protect me you know and so you know
4: to say that the court is not going to save us might be the uh, the understatement of the month, Paul. I mean, uh, <laughs> talk, <laughs> talk really, to me. <laughs> well, l- look. The, l- let me let me start this way because I'm I'm burdened with some actual knowledge of the subject since I was a professor of constitutional law for a quarter century. For the vast majority of American history, the Supreme Court has been a profoundly conservative or reactionary institution. That you know your your grandfather. Uh, It was really a a noble and extraordinary exception, as was the war in court. But think about the entire first century of the country. Um, What did the Supreme Court do for the most vulnerable and downtrodden and and, um, violated people in the country for enslaved Africans? Nothing other than... um, in uh, 1857 in the Dred Scott Dred decision- Dred Scott, yeah. Constitutionalized their slavery and their disempowerment to say, you know, an African-American could not be a citizen within the meaning of the diversity jurisdiction clause such that a an African could assert that he had been made free by being taken into free territory. And then the court struck down the Missouri Compromise um, yeah, and, it's it really um, is.
3: Actually, once you get into the history, you're a thousand percent right. And and people so also is, like. Even
4: after the Civil War, even after the Reconstruction mm-hmm. Amendments, so you get to 1896 with Plessy versus Ferguson and the court guts equal protection and says, no, you have to interpret equal protection through the prism of the customs and traditions and usages of the people. In other words, use the racism and the Jim Crow apartheid that grew up after the Civil War to define equal protection. And as long as it's consistent with the social mores and customs, then it doesn't violate equal protection. So that system lasted up until Bob Moses and the Civil Rights Movement went south in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and up until the war in court, which was this extraordinary exception and departure from what the court, you know. Had had been like, and you know, which isn't to say that there, you know, were not great, noble justices. Every once in a while, came along like Brandeis, who was absolutely a phenomenon. But um, it was during that period that we got the white primary line of cases. We got Brown versus Board. We got, um, you know, uh, Miranda uh, versus Arizona. Roe versus Wade comes um soon thereafter but there was you know a two or three decade period where the supreme court was aligned with the rights and freedoms of the people and then right back to the old baseline with the burger court the rank court the roberts court and now today i mean they you know they've just blown the the doors off of the uh, hinges right i mean uh citizens united uh, yeah corporations have the constitutional uh, political rights of the people. Yeah, of course they do. Every corporate treasury in America transformed into a political uh, slush fund, uh, overturning Roe versus Wade. I mean, and and the the reasoning in these decisions is just pathetic. I mean, the, the most recent one that blew my mind was um, the, the case about the woman who says, well, I might have a business that might have a website where I might serve um, wedding couples. And this guy told me that he wanted me to uh, make a website for his wedding with his gay partner. It turns out the guy is straight, has been married for 15 years, but they take that case. They they violate everything they've ever said about needing an actual case or controversy. There's no standing because nobody's been injured and they render what is basically an advisory opinion. I mean, it was like a law, a bad law school hypothetical, it, well, an example, and, uh, yeah, and this is what passes for constitutional law today.
3: No, I mean, it also like, you know, it, it's very convenient not to have actually a couple who is, whose life is upended by this, but now we're going right. to have couples whose lives are upended on this. And, you know, the, the real life application is that, you know, I have to be, I, I'd have no idea if I'm going into a, an artist or a photographer who might want to do a portrait of my family if they can just say no that would that would that would be endorsing i mean it's really i just think the idea of the of the, of the, the law as a force for unraveling society as opposed to creating co- cohesion and and more yeah. um um I, almost obligation to one another as even though we may disagree obligation to be with one another and this is this is what they're saying is basically we have no obligation
4: well, th- this is this precise issue was resolved by the Supreme Court uh, back in uh, you know the Heart of Atlanta Motel case and Ali's Barbecue, where the court upheld civil rights laws and against precisely attacks by hotel and motel and lunch counter owners who said, I've got a First Amendment right, either a religious free liberty right or a religious or a free association right not to associate with uh, you know, interracial couples or interfaith couples or couples that I don't approve of. And if you're a place of public accommodation, if you're a hotel, motel or restaurant, you can't say that you're open to the public. That's the authority of the state to decide. So if you've got a First Amendment right to say, oh, you're violating my creative rights by making me, you know, decorate a cake by putting, you know, the name of, um, you know, gay wedding partners, on it, you can do that for interracial couples. You can do sure. that for interfaith couples. Sure. I mean, you know, and then we've just undone all of the civil rights laws.
3: Exactly. Exactly. Listen, you, you, you have so much flying at you. All day, literally, because you're in the you're in the pit. It really looks like that sometimes. You like look at the Congress. You're like, okay, like where are the lions and where? I mean, this is like a mess, a mess. And people, you know, I I I I hate to name names, but for Marjorie Taylor Greene to talk about decorum is the most crazy thing in the world. I mean, it's just it, it really is. It's troubling deeply. So you're surrounded by this. I I like to ask people who are in the midst of it what gives them hope. And I'd like to ask you that. What gives you hope as we face this moment in our democracy, as well, you... you know, let me all just
4: say one thing about that decorum issue, because yesterday, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene decided to project up on the screen during her five minutes of questioning um, pornographic images that she asserted were from Hunter Biden's laptop. Although, since we've never been given the putative hard drive to Hunter Biden's laptop, we have no idea what we saw other than these pornographic images of people having sex in different ways. Um, I mean, that doesn't violate the rules of decorum of the House, and we don't have rules of decorum in the House. There was nothing relevant about it. It wasn't like we were having a hearing about pornography or human trafficking or something where you could conjure up some reason that would justify it. They were making a claim about how there was political interference in the tax prosecution charging decisions. I mean, completely irrelevant. I mean, you you cannot torture out any kind of connection. So it was purely sensationalistic and voyeuristic. Of course, if it had been in a book, she would have voted to ban it.
3: Well, and not to mention, it's like they they talk about you know pornography and you know very quick to throw grooming things and and you know all these these yeah. you know they're they're very quick to point out um, and then and then they do that in a public setting. I mean, it was really yeah. it was absolutely yeah. unbelievable. But
4: let me t- let me tell you this. I mean, I'm finding reasons for hope all over the place. I mean, I'm finding reasons for hope in all of the great young people out there who are beyond the lunacy, the conspiracy theory, the paranoia, the racism, the anti-Semitism, the homophobia, the immigrant bashing. They uh, also, alas, are a little bit beyond grammar, too, but we're working with them on that. Um, (laughs) But it's a marvelous young generation, and I derive a lot of hope from prior generations of Americans who overcame odds worse than we face, to defeat forces of right-wing authoritarianism and racism. And, you know, we're able to face their burnout or their own stress and anxiety in a way such that they could uh, move forward and we can derive a lot of inspiration from uh, them. And, you know, my my dad used to say to us when we were growing up, when everything looks hopeless, you're the hope. So I'm finding hope in... um, you know, the values I was raised with, and I find hope in the people that I meet every day who are rejecting the lunacy. And I do believe, I hope this doesn't sound too partisan for your totally nonpartisan broadcast, but I do believe that in the final analysis, it's going to be a showdown between the party of democracy, the Democrats, and what used to be Lincoln's party, a party of freedom and anti-slavery and anti-know-nothingism that has become an authoritarian cult of personality that cult of personality will be a collection of cults you got to check out this documentary shiny happy people and you see what the social basis is for the republican party today it's really wounded injured people who are in cultish type political or religious organizations i mean that that's like the heart of who gathered on january 6th when donald trump called them all together. And the ones who fortunately were not part of that are waking up. I mean, there's this uh, a wonderful woman who was a 69-year-old grandmother who got caught up in it um, and um, got arrested. She spent two months in jail. Uh, and uh, Trump sent out a social message about her, about Mrs. Hemphill. Um, talking about how horrific it was. And she sent out a message saying, I pled guilty because I was guilty and I was brainwashed and I was part of the cult of Trump and I will never be part of it again. And I will never allow you to brainwash me again. So there are people every day who are breaking out of not just the Republican party, but breaking out of the the Donald Trump cult. And some of them are remaining Republicans and some of them are saying, I'm sorry that the party is under the spell of trump i can't be part of it anymore i'm going to be an independent i'll be a democrat or i'll figure out where i'm going so um the the dynamics are on our side i am convinced of it and i'm going to be traveling um in the country to raise money for democrats to build a strong uh house democratic majority and to uh defend the white house and to get uh joe biden reelected. uh this is our political mandate, an imperative. And this could be the election where the Republican Party just implodes uh, because they have surrendered critical thinking skills.
3: Mm. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin has been representing Maryland's 8th Congressional District since 2017. He previously served nine years in the Maryland State Senate. Congressman Raskin, thank you so much for being on the State of Belief and for all you are doing. And uh, we just really appreciate your voice and your vision.
4: I appreciate that so much. Reverend Raskin Bush, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun and um, keep up the great work.
3: We've got to take one more break, but up next, voting rights as an interfaith issue. I'll talk with Interfaith Alliance Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy, Darcy Hirsch. You're listening to State of Belief, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance.
0: Find out more about State of Belief and Interfaith Alliance at stateofbelief.com.
6: Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. Oh, my goodness. It's a number of statements from the bassinet of the 45th president. Maybe he hasn't had his bottle yet. He's a little nah, verbal. He's there's only things. got two words. He's a little blinky. Yeah. He, just, yeah. woke yeah, little he blinky. just woke up. Yeah, he just woke up. He's got oh, caps lock, but just... First one is, make America great again! All right. That's the three exclamation points. And then the second one is, prosecutorial misconduct! Also three exclamation points. you have heard that before. <laughs> oh. And then,
3: 2024
6: election interference! Wow, he's really into the triple exclamation points, which so it cool. means it's yeah. super mm-hmm. important. Okay, uh, he went on to say... Got his baby, got his breath for okay. a second. Ah, and, 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 uh, yeah. Okay. Oh, and then he lost caps lock until the end here. <laughs> we'll have fun on the stand with all these people that say the presidential election wasn't rigged in Stalin. <laughs> the trial of Did the century. Stalin again. Stalin. Yeah. Again. Again with the German pastry. Oh. The trial of the century. Oh, I see. He would like to be compared to OJ. To That's mm-hmm. nice. Okay. Uh, and then the last one would be, so they impeach me over a perfect phone call and they don't impeach Biden for being the most corrupt president in the history of the United States?
0: Point of order.
5: Yes, Christopher?
0: OJ was the trial of last century. Right, right, right.
6: right. And also guilty. Okay. <laughs> Well, there's that, yeah. <laughs> but we're in a new century now, yeah. so. Speaking yep. of uh, German, huh? Brian Tyler Cohen uh, tweets, my God, it turns out the that a DeSantis campaign staffer didn't just share a video featuring DeSantis with Nazi symbols. He made it himself. Yeah. He previously praised white nationalist Nick Fuentes, and he was hired to write uh, DeSantis' speeches. Mm-hmm. Had they just gone ahead and announced their the official sponsor? They fired this guy. Of the front. DeSantis campaign? Yes. 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 I go now to the
5: Hitler Burger to
6: what?
0: get myself my lunch. They use the free Wi-Fi at Hitler Burger to put that together. Oh, there you go.
6: Find The Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices.
0: You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network.
3: Welcome back to State of Belief. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. Recently, Interfaith Alliance announced support for proposed legislation from U.S. Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock of Georgia. And I am happy to welcome Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy at Interfaith Alliance, Darcy Hirsch, back to State of Belief. Darcy, thank you for being here.
5: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be so, here again.
3: Yeah. So what is this bill? I'm so excited that we're signed on to, to support this bill because it feels so aligned with our work in democracy. Tell us what's what this bill is and and what it proposes.
5: Sure. So this is the Freedom to Vote Act, which is a historic legislative package that would really improve access to the ballot for all Americans. It would advance common sense federal election standards and campaign finance reforms and essentially protect our democracy. Um, The the timing for the introduction of of this package is so critical. It is so urgent. Just last month, we had the 10 year anniversary of the Supreme Court ruling of Shelby County versus Holder, which gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965 by eliminating critical anti-discrimination protections. And with the 2024 election on everybody's minds, the timing is really now to work towards creating an inclusive democracy and ensuring that every vote has a voice.
3: For me, this feels so aligned with Interfaith Alliance's work on, you know, freedom of religion and democracy being hand in hand. And like, you know, we, we I think the, the quote that many of us turn to is Representative John Lewis when he said the right to vote is almost sacred because it's an expression of our deepest commitments within uh, our democracy, how we're going to live together. So so talk to me a little bit about how you understand, you know, how this fits in with an organization that really tries to blend religious freedom, civil rights and democracy, um, preservation and building democracy?
5: The right to vote is is the cornerstone of democracy. Our our country is built upon each citizen being able to determine who who is in power. This This is about power. And when we're thinking about civil rights, when we're thinking about LGBTQ equality, when we're thinking about support for our public schools, fighting discrimination against all kinds, supporting separation of, of religion and state. Um, it's really our, our voice at the ballot box that ensures that our leadership is ensuring the civil rights of of all. And it is the obligation of, of the faith community to guarantee these rights and speak out and say that, that our faith believes that inequality in humanity and in full civic participation. And so I think that, you know, our engagement in the 2024 election, um, mobilizing, advocating, ensuring election protection, election integrity is really critical to the work that that we do at Interfaith Alliance and in protecting our democracy.
3: So what is the timeline here? Is this, you know, you, what, what can our listeners do? Because I think one of the important things here is that um This is a a bill that has been introduced. And so it is an opportunity for our listeners to actually reach out to their senators and say, this feels important. Can you um, let us know your stance on this, how you understand it, and how we can support it?
5: That's absolutely right. This this is such an opportunity for our listener, listeners to reach out to their representatives, to their senators, and to say either thank you for endorsing this legislation. It was it was endorsed uh, by I believe the entire Democratic caucus, um, and it's significantly been lifted up by leadership to say thank you for supporting this. How can I partner with you to move it forward? And if your senator or your representative didn't support it, to reach out and and say this is important to me I, as as a as a citizen as a someone who that lives in your in your district. Um, I urge you to sponsor this to sponsor this legislation. And so we're, you know, we're still in the beginnings of the one hundred and eighteenth and 18th Congress. Um, and so the, there is time to build support and potentially move this legislative package forward. Um, the other thing is that there are separate pieces of, of this legislative package that have um, been introduced. So there's the Democracy Restoration Act, which is included in this package, um, but also uh, is a standalone bill. So if you care about uh, restoring the rights of, of those who've served their, their criminal sentence, but have not yet been allowed to, to vote, you can reach out and say, please, please support this part of the legislation. And Senator Warnock is actually introducing this week another piece of the bill called the Preventing Election Subversion Act. So you can certainly reach out to your legislators and ask them to, to support different pieces of the, of the package as well and, and articulate which parts are most important to you. Although, of course, at Interfaith Alliance, uh, we support all of it and we believe that it would ensure um, secure access to the vote for for all.
3: What was this last piece that you mentioned? Can you say a little bit more about that last uh, piece of legislation that you mentioned that um, to prevent the subversion of the vote? That feels really (laughs) pressing and important.
5: Yes, so as we all know, during the last election, The electoral results in different districts were were challenged by local election boards, uh, by local election commissioners, by governors of of certain states, and uh, Senator Warnock's standalone legislation, the Preventing Election Subversion Act, would increase the safeguards to ensure that voter voices are heard, that electoral representatives in certain counties wouldn't be able to just challenge those votes and strip strip those votes from their authority.
3: It is, it feels like this is just foundational stuff of democracy. This isn't like special anything. This is actually just what democracy is supposed to look like. Uh, and traditionally, Voices of diverse faith traditions have been very invested in making sure that democracy works, and so I I, I feel like we're you know we're part of a, a, a you know our our coalition is broad, and we work with people of all sorts of different faith traditions, as well as those who have um, beliefs that are not traditionally part of a faith tradition, to really work to protect the ballot. And uh, there's going to be so much good work that is going to have to happen in order to make sure that every Vote is heard, and and I know that you you're developing those um, those those opportunities for our collaboration. Are how do you feel like our listeners can um, also participate in democracy um, coming out of their whatever uh, belief they have.
5: So there are there are so many opportunities, and Paul, thank you for raising that. Um, we're just beginning to roll out what our what our strategy um, will be in terms of how can we engage folks. But certainly, there's advocacy. There's the, There's this critical piece of legislation that we've just discussed, and I just want to flag. Quickly, you know, depending on where you live, what state you live in, you may take certain things for granted. Not every state has absentee voting, um, no excuse to absentee voting. Not every state in, in allows early voting. Not every state allows uh volunteers to bring water and food to people who are waiting in line to vote. I mean, these are these are um necessities and, and things that we just um take for granted in in certain Jurisdictions where we have those things. So I, I also just want to kind of educate our listeners and share that um, this is about equality. This is about equal access, um, and so that's that's why this legislation is is so critical. Um, but uh, you know, past past advocating for these election protections, there's real work that one can do on the ground. Um, you know, getting out the vote, helping to mobilize and educate voters all around the country working with various houses of worship to help encourage people to vote, educating folks on certain issues. What are the issues that you care about? What are the issues that get you out to vote on election day? Um, And and really encouraging people to to lift their voice and vote. Um, Some people don't, right? I mean, we also take that for granted that you really need to urge people to get out the vote. Um, protecting the polls, uh, volunteering as a, as a poll worker or a poll chaplain, ensuring that voters are safe, that they're engaging in, um, that, that campaigns are engaging in legal, legally, uh, you know, legal outreach at the polls. There's just so much that we can do.
3: Uh, Darcy Hirsch, thank you so much for all of the work that you do and for, um, for all this great uh, conversation today.
5: Great, thank you so much for having me.
3: And that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. We need your help keeping State of Belief on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com, that's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part, both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us at Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kerstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I'll be in conversation with scholar Andrew Whitehead. His ready for pre-order new book is titled American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.